you've done it. We're at season two of the Bookswell Intersections podcast, episode one. My name is Cody Sisko. I'm in the Rare Bird Books office in downtown LA, and I'm here with some wonderful co-hosts and special guests. I'm here with Dan Lopez. Hello. Julia Callahan. Hello. From Rare Bird. Thank you for having us. And Viva Padilla. Hello. We'll be talking about Dryland Lit and Viva's uh, work to highlight some of the good and awesome poets coming out of LA. And I think the first thing is, um, it's 2020, what the fuck? I just got back from the AWP conference in San Antonio, which went ahead despite a lot of criticism of the organization for doing this right in the midst of the public health crisis called Was Corona. it a ghost town? That's what I want to know. I was maybe looking forward to a little bit of a ghost town vibe, and that was not the case. Oh. There were tons of people there. Um, there were a lot of people who didn't go. I'd say you know maybe as many as half maybe not quite as many as that um just canceled yeah. and and i get it um but that said like half of more than ten thousand is still a, a butt ton of people yeah yeah i was wondering like if because i i've heard authors talk about i don't really go to awp that much sometimes if i get asked to be on a panel i'll go but um i've heard authors sort of talk about like that it used to be this like kind of tight intimate group and it was like so nice and you could really meet people there and it was like less clicky and I was wondering if it was kind of like that but I guess not I think it remains kind of important an important place for people to like make connections and I think it's like important career-wise um I get that that hmm I understand that it maybe isn't like the cozy fuzzy family vibe um there are some cozy fuzzy family people there. Like uh, some of the folks I was hanging out with from women who submit and other local LA folks, um, you know, they were hugs all around and a real kind of oh, real hugs, real hugs. <laughs> hey, that's how, get, that's how you get coronavirus. Yeah. Human uh, touch. Wow, <laughs> so, you know, the love, the love fest continues. And, um, Chua Choi always brings me whiskey whenever I go. So I really, that's my, like the thing I look forward to yeah. the most. They always. said they, they sold out all their books. Um, wow. so that for writ, writ large press wow. sold out all their books, cool. which is great. Um, yay writ large. I wonder if AWP has kind of picked up some of the energy that BA lost in the last few years. If like I know like Winter Institute is getting a lot bigger now, and I wonder if also AWP like as one eclipses another one kind of grows. Yeah, if they're growing, they're going to grow into a crisis because you know the co-executive director resigned like the day before the conference started over the decision to still hold it, and they've had serious. Um, drama in the past year with the former executive director, Chloe Schwenke, being forced out and then suing the board um, for discrimination because she's a transgender woman. So like that stuff is still kind of happening with their leadership. I mean, AWP has been drama for as long as they've been aware of AWP. But like, I don't know, I'm glad people push on them to like make it better every year. One of the really interesting things I saw coming out of it was, and this is not just happening there, it's happening throughout the industry with this virus that everyone is, you know, sequestering themselves or, you know, afraid of going out that people have been 
helping each other out online and being like, hey, if you can't come to this reading or you can't go to AWP, order the book of like this author who would have been there or would have had this event um, online instead or from a local bookstore or what have you. Um, it's been kind of cool to see that's the ethos of the independent publishing, really publishing in general, but like the independent publishing community anyway. It's good to kind of see it in practice and like everyone kind of keeping that momentum going even amidst this um, public health crisis. Yeah, I think, I mean, writers are going to get hit hard because, you know, the the publishing business doesn't necessarily pay a living wage, right? So we've all got side gigs and other ways to make money. Um, a lot of those are not things that you can step away from when you get sick. And so, you know, it's, I think writers in particular is kind of a vulnerable group. Sure. Yeah. Um, Julia, you went to the Winter Institute. How was that? Yeah, it was great. It's a great conference. It's um, exhausting. It was pre-coronavirus sort of coming to the U.S. Um, so that wasn't a concern. But um, it's, you know, what was interesting, um, it's four or five days, basically, with independent booksellers Um and what I always like about it is you really get, you get, we get to really talk one-on-one -on -one with a lot of indie booksellers. So that's for us as a publishing house, that's why it's so important. But like, um, Janine Cummings was there. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So there was like, um, yeah, so she had been booked there, you know, a long time ago. I mean, you have to book people there, you know months probably a year in advance um and there was going to be like a discussion about like talking about like heavy topics and like a bit maybe a week before or no, a few weeks before you know Miriam Gerba's um essay had come out and right that week was like Oprah had just picked the book and then like everything was exploding and I was like is this woman still gonna come like and props to her that she did and like fielded the questions I saw all those booksellers literally they left that and <laughs> that that panel was like it was standing room only people like you couldn't get into it and they left that and came to me where I had to like pitch them books for two hours <laughs> So that was an experience. <laughs> that was probably the first literary storm of this year. And it seems like long ago, but it's still going on. So uh, yeah, well, Oprah just released the two episodes of her conversation with Janine Cumming. And that's already getting like places like Romescola and other places are like cool for talking about it. But also you keep centering the conversation around. Isn't it great that this has given us an opportunity to talk about the controversy? Right. Like, well, okay. pushing to the margins right. a lot of the voices who've been critical from the start and also still being like well this book moved us it moved us but but what does that even mean like is that making them more interested in like researching the actual issues behind like the book or, or even like you know central american migrants or is it is it pushing them to what is it what is it moving them to do i don't get it yeah, word, that's what really bothers me that whole like it's it's moving and then it's like okay yeah the word but, that um sticks in my head from miriam's essay or you know review was um trauma porn right and so if it's just kind of this feeling like you're involved or doing something or caring 
but it's, you know, at such an arm's distance and you're not actually getting involved in like fixing border issues, advocating for immigrants, like whatever, um, then what is it? Right. It's a very like eat, pray, love book, like for those type of women that like just they want to just like feel good about um, doing their part and but but nothing more like they'll never get more involved like they'll still be in their little bubble so silver lining though when i saw you last i think it was at the dignidad literaria event at antioch Mm -hmm. what did you think of that oh man (laughs) i mean it was cool that everybody got together and everybody was like yeah miriam i really think it was like miriam's moment so i'm very happy for her and i really hope like things i really hope like things turn out really well with with flat iron or whatever at the same time i kind of felt like there we gotta do more than this than just like get together and pat each other on the back and say great job and we're doing great um, I still feel like there needs to be something bigger happening. Like there needs to be more of organizing behind um, behind this whole movement uh, because there's a lot of us like that are independent publishers that are like um, that are doing the work, and we could be creating our own thing if we all came together. So I just kind of felt like there was an opportunity there to kind of like everyone kind of meet each other and get to know each other, and maybe organize beyond what they're trying to do with a flat iron because that could just be a temporary thing. That could be like, oh, well, we'll, we'll put out a couple books, right. Latinx books to right. meet we'll the hire, market needs. We'll hire one or two people. Yeah, we'll hire, you know, a couple people to kind of like meet the quota. And, and I kind of feel, it's it's cynical of me to say, but, but I'm kind of realistic when it comes to like the market. It's like they see, they might be seeing like a, a like uh, an opportunity to capture the Latinx community because there's so many of us then they may be seeing it as like well this is an opportunity for us to capture these consumers that we haven't really had you know so i i just i'm not like super optimistic about it i just hope that there's more organizing beyond just meeting up with Macmillan and trying to have them change because i I really don't believe that they want to change i want to i i say that they're just driven by like the economic kind of like greed of like capturing i think there's like so many ways of looking at, at this controversy um on the one hand there is the what you're saying like the the sort of the greed side of it right and I think the Latin community, just like a lot of other communities, and as we've seen recently with the LGBT community, like there's the power of the pink dollar or, you know, whatever you want to call the Latinx dollar, right? Um, so in a real sort of cynical way, it could be like our money matters. And so pu- publish books that we're, we want to read, right? Um, so I think that's that's one way of looking at it. So it's like, is that the best way to go and change an industry? Maybe not. Like maybe not ethically or feel good. That's not the best way. But if you want to capture a market, then that results in having more diverse literature. I think that's really cool as well. Um, and another way to look at it, I haven't read the book, so I should say that I should have said that at the beginning. Um, but I, I found interesting the way that the controversy about all this came out because on the one hand, people were like, oh, you're just doing... Um, sort of this, you know, disaster porn or, you know, whatever term you want to use. But I also heard a lot of criticisms that were like, oh, she's basically plagiarizing better books. And you can't have it both ways, right? Like, you can't be trafficking in, like, stereotypes and then also plagiarizing more authentic literature. So I think one of the problems we have here, and, you know, whether you want to say that she's a 
Janine Cummings is a great member of her community or not, she is still like Latina, right? She's a quarter Latinx. Like she didn't claim that before, but I get really, I don't know, I get kind of defensive about that kind of stuff because I feel like we tend to police our own community in ways that aren't always helpful. Um, I don't know. So I think she should probably be a better advocate, but we also shouldn't like pile on her and be like, you're not really Latina. Like that doesn't help anyone. Oh, you know, I think that's the thing. It's like when it comes to like being Latina, Chicana, Latinx, you have to claim it. You can't use it out of convenience. Like, oh, well, I'm Latina now, so that should give me a pass. She should have claimed being Latina long ago or being Chicana long ago because with that comes responsibilities. Like, as a Chicana, you have to have a responsibility to represent your roots and and to be there to, for, your, for your people. You can't just take it out whenever it's convenient or put it away when it's not. The fact that she got, like, seven figures for this and it was badly written. It was badly researched. Yeah, she took from different sources, and it became like this this thing that like was not like authentic. I I just don't see like the merit in her book or like her receiving so much money. And I think it's really sad that like, um, you know, like w- like independent publishers. Like we're not making money. We're not making that kind of money. We're never gonna probably make that kind of money. But it's like the need is there, the 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 market is there, and it's kind of like there should be authentic voices, and it shouldn't just be all just like, well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna capture this trend because I also feel like it was like uh, this is a trend like yeah. because of this the because of ice and because of like all this other all these other things going on I feel like they they needed somebody to kind of like. Um, take advantage of that and so it was just like this was the book to kind of like take advantage of that i don't i don't feel like there was a real like genuine intention behind it i think it was just like greed yeah i like the thing that's kind of like nagged at the back of my mind is that you know maybe a year or two before valeria lucelli um wrote the lost children archive for penguin random and which is a great book about this like border, you know, people at the border trying to cross into the United States um, and is a phenomenally written book. She's such a she's such a wonderful writer. And the thing that sort of nagged at me is like, OK, well, why isn't Oprah picking books like that? And I, I mean, there's a part of me that knows why Oprah's right. not picking books like that, because that actually really challenges you, that book. Right. If you're a middle class white person reading that book it lays some of the blame at your feet from the life you're leading. Whereas American dirt leaves no blame at your feet. You feel good as a middle-class white lady and you're drinking your wine and having a little book club. And like, you know, you get to talk about these issues and then feel like you've done something by talking about them and none of the blame for your lifestyle. Like the fact that you're living your lifestyle the way you're living your lifestyle is meaning that, some of these people are forced to leave their homes because like you're not standing up to what America has done, what the United States has done in these regions. And so I think for me, that's the thing that sort of bugs me is like, I get it. Oprah is like for the, for all of the people, but like there's a part of me that's like push on this, like, like pick books that are pushing on these, 
these people and these topics, you know, and I, I don't know. That's what that's what bothers me about it. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I mean, I wish that our culture, we had that kind of shift in our culture where, like, it was in the norm to kind of, like, for everyone to be educated about these kind of issues. And I, I mean, like, I think like as writers, as poets, we want that to happen, but it's like, are we looking to these corporations to make that happen? You know, it's like, I really don't believe in it because like we've seen with Macmillan and Oprah, like they're not doing the work that like we wish could be done and that really needs to be done. Um, and like American Dirt was written in a way that like, you know, like I, I didn't read it either, but I wrote, read excerpts of it and, and like I kind of got an idea of where it was going and how it the, um, how it was moving. So it kind of like has this really false. I don't know. I think things have really changed. Like my parents crossed the border in the 60s and 70s. And at that time, it was super easy. I mean, I don't want to say super easy, but like it was easier than it is now. Um, now there's like all kinds of like perils and like you got ice of course so now it's a lot harder and i just feel like the book really didn't you know it just it, it it didn't feel like it's in it was modern i don't know it just doesn't feel like it's in its time it still feels like it's in it in like some kind of nostalgic past of like when the american dream was was the thing you know like oh vamos a cruzar la frontera para ir a los estados unidos because that's you know that's like our our like our lighthouse or something i just kind of feel like that's not real anymore you know mm -hmm. things are so it's just so different now it's so. it's also kind of a boring narrative at this point like my my people came from cuba it's a very different until very recently it was a wet foot dry foot policy like you got here you got here and which is why it's very infuriating when you see people like marco rubio like saying come here legally it's like girl like, you get a real privileged position to say that from. Um, but that aside, I don't want us to be seen as a monolith. Um, and so I think that that often can happen with these kind of stories. Like, we're like, oh, you know, this is, you know, not the type of story that we should be telling as a group. But aside from that, and I agree, like, with all the criticism of the book, I agree. Like, it, it shouldn't probably not have been published and should not have gotten all the attention it got. Um but I'm also just tired of those stories. Like there's so many more interesting stories. Like I run a, a Spanish language book club in the same building. And one of the things I'm always looking for when I'm selecting books is like, I want a story that's something we haven't seen all the time. Like the border crossing story, the like cartel story, like those kind of things is like, it's what American audience and by that I should say, like the white American audience wants to consume because it reflects a narrative that you're expecting from outside, you know, from Latin America. And like, those are not interesting stories. Like they're cliche and they're like gangster stories or Western stories or a genre. And there's so much more richness out there. Like there's many interesting things that are happening in Mexico. There's but it's many kind of like, things. is the United States ready? That's what I always wonder. I'm like, is it ready? I don't know. Like, I feel like the United States is still like a little kid, you know, and it's still like an adolescent, like still trying to like shoot everybody and like you know be cool i don't know it's just like it's not it's it's trying to do this thing that I, I don't know i don't feel like it's i like i said like i wish there was a cultural shift and i wish we could grow up and like see things for what they are but i also feel like at the same time seeing things for what they are means facing a lot of history yes. a lot of that ugly history and you know well i, I would know. i would say to your point as well like when we think of the united states we tend to default to like oh white america but like 
there have been Latinos in this country since the beginning, right? So like, and we're growing every year. So I think to your point, like we are here already and we want to see different stories as well, right. you know, like, yeah. Well, I mean, so, so I, I think, hope yeah, so my, my we, answer is yes. I think we are ready for it and literature should be yeah. the market should I mean, be responding to it. I hope that it. one day we could have our own corporation, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's really it. Like I, I wish we could just make all these decisions and have all this promotion and like, you know, have this budget. But this is the question uh, I think I've, I've wanted to ask for a while on the podcast is like, is change going to come by infiltrating and changing the acquiring editors at large publishers and kind of how they see the market or is it going to be you know that there's this new crop of indies and smaller presses saying hey we get this thing that you guys don't get and we're going to be able to do this thing better than you and we've got books that people are going to love and so like move over big goliath we're we're um we're la gente so kind of like what what happened with the music industry where they just kind of like um they'll sign your they'll sign you under their label if you already have like a bunch of followers if you already have like an album out if you already have is that happening i don't i think that i feel like that could happen I don't know. I just feel like I'm kind of more on the I've never seen that in history ever happen before. So I, I for me, it's like it's too. I don't know. I don't think that could happen. I, think I don't it's know. It's going to be a little bit of everything. I think, you know, when you look back when Toni Morrison was like the only black editor acquiring books um, at where was she at Viking? I think. Oh, God, I, I'm sorry. I don't remember. She was um, at one of the big houses yeah. and and made a point to bring in black voices, black women, queer black women. Like she, she made a point to be bringing in these voices, right? She's publishing Angela Davis. She's publishing people that weren't that were being ignored by main, mainstream publishing. When you look at now, I mean, I not that any kind of equity has been achieved. I'm not saying that, but like that. Publishing has opened a little bit, right? It's been shoved into it. Cor- I'm not talking about mainstream corporate publishing. Mm-hmm. It's been shoved into it and has sort of had to open a little bit. And partially because I think all of us as book the book buying public are like, okay, I've seen this like emotionally stunted white dude in Brooklyn complaining about you know, how horrible his like corporate job is. Like I've read that book 17 times. Please give me something else for the love of God. Give me something else. Sorry. We're in downtown LA. There's outside noises. Um, but, uh, but like there's this part of me that's like, they have, they have had to, to budge ever so slightly. And I don't think that they deserve any credit whatsoever for how, how like, small of a budget it's been so far but it has it has moved slightly i think places like that all of us work and the the work that all of us do i think that really shows that there are markets for mm. um these other voices and i get it like you know i i remember many years ago um being hired by a company to take around this like New York Times bestselling author um, to all these like signings all over Southern California at Barnes and Nobles. And they told us who she was. And I like heard the name and I was like, I've, I've worked in, at that point I had worked in books for like maybe 10 years. And I was like, I've never heard this woman's name before, but she, every book she publishes, the second it comes out, she sells 300,000 copies. And, um, 
And I was like, I don't know. I have no idea who this woman is. So I think one of the things we also forget about is that big corporate publishing is hitting this like these like sections of readers who it's like they want to read the equivalent of a CSI episode. You know, they want to read that book over and over and over and over and over again. They're going to read every single book David Baldacci writes and or hire someone else to write with his name attached to it. And they want to see the bus go by with that book cover on it and right. be like, oh, and I'm reading that. Deal. I'm part of it. Yeah, and they want, yeah. And so, and I think like Dream independent publishing is never, It's it, we're just like, that's not what we do. We're And we're not good at that when we try to do it. We're terrible at it. Um, so I think there's the the pushing, everyone has to sort of push forward at the same time. Right. I don't know. I just feel like, um, I I was looking up, I was trying to look it up, but I couldn't find it. But, um, I went to a Dignidad Literaria event also in San Francisco at Alley Cat when I was up there in the Bay and, uh, they mentioned it and I, I couldn't find it, but it was like, how many, they mentioned like how many books were published in 2019. And I think it was like, I don't know. It was like a ridiculous number. It was like 60,000. I don't know. I might be wrong. It's but more than that. It was like maybe 600,000 or something. I don't know. That's I don't want to, I don't want to mess up the s- statistic, but I think it was something like that. And they were like, how many of those were like Latino or Latinx? And it was like under a hundred or something, something somewhere around there. So I'm just kind of like, it's not that the writers are not there. The poets are not work, not there. The content is there. The books are there. It's just like, I don't think they're going to want in my opinion, I don't think they care about small independent publishers i i really don't i don't i don't i don't know I, I think that's right. yeah i think yeah. you're right yeah, I, think I think the think big guys right. don't care at all about that and i mean it's it's like expecting walmart to stock like some artisanal brand right like it's just a different business like i think a more likely thing is that a big publisher will see a market opportunity to capitalize as again as you were saying like on the latinx community and be like great what's a publisher that's doing that let's acquire them and like now you're one of her imprints and now you do it you know like i think that's the way it's like the borg model like that's the way you do it like that's what corporations do i mean do. i would be okay with them having an office in la and i could work there and like you know call some shots but right. get paid they, they should like, be paying you 100k per year yes. to put together dry land i would be down i would be down and then i would help everybody because then it would be like and then we could have like our own little thing going on and yeah. then writers get I just, paid i mean like yeah, we're like, talking see, big if change I was, if i was coming or whatever however you say last time i would take those seven figures and like create my own publishing company and like capture all these other independent publishers that's what i would do if i were her if i was a real chicana if she was a real chicana a real but she's not yeah challenge thrown or laid down yeah (laughs) i would do that so maybe on less fraught topics what have you been reading lately American di- No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all raised our hands and said we haven't read it. <laughs> There's too many other books. Did you hear? Yeah. There's like 600,000 books this yeah. year. I, I got to choose wisely. Exactly. <laughs> um, I just finished, I actually just read My Life in France by Joy Child, which is so delightful. It's just like a delightful book. Um, and I am reading um, Rachel Monroe's uh, Savage Appetites, which is about women's obsession with true crime. Huh. It's great. Uh, I recently read Fiebre Tropical by Julia Delgado Lopera. I'm not sure if, if she goes by they now or not. On the jacket copy, it's she, but I've heard they recently, so I'm just going to say they. They're a Colombian-American writer, grew up in a very religious 
community in Miami and the book is written bilingually it's like spanglish all over the place code changing all over code switching all over the place it's really amazing and the voice of the narrator is so engaging and the narrator is like struggling with her queerness and not really struggling like she's becoming aware of her queerness while um kind of finding her way within this religious community um and it's kind of a really fascinating but super funny too and it was just written up in the new york times and all this amazing stuff's happening for the book so i love it it's so great um, I'm reading some of my friends' poetry collections with that just came out. Um, Nuclear Shadows of Palm Trees by my friend Nicola Garcia. He also is a South Central poet. And then uh, my homegirl, The Boulevard um, by Janice Miller, who is also from uh, Compton. Mm-hmm. And she's like this uh, Panamanian-American mujer. Um and then I recently read, because of this whole American Dirt thing, I read Across the Wire by Luis Alberto Urrea, which is his classic. And it's just, man, man, everybody's got to read it. If, if, if people are really interested in it and, like, learning about all that, all these issues, like, they should pick up that book because it gets you right in there. And, yeah, it's, yeah. I'll put it on my list. Um, at AWP, I picked up the new anthology from Women Who Submit, Accolades, yes. which has um, poetry and some fiction and some nonfiction. And um, the ones I've read so far were really good. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish that soon. Um, I also picked up the Lambda Literary Fellows anthology from 2019. That's a fat book um, <laughs> with a lot in it. So I'm going to read that too. I, wait, I want to say the one from Rare Bird also, uh, Slouching Towards Los Angeles. I really enjoyed that. It was like, I mean, it was just like so many different takes on L.A., yeah. you know, and, and a lot of them I was like, oh, that's really cool. And a lot of them I was like, eh, whatever. Um, but the writing was good. Um, and And it just made me think more about like, geez, should I be writing creative nonfiction? Should I be like trying to like, you know get a little perspective on what I'm doing and where I'm living and how I'm living my life. I mean, I yes. Yeah. <laughs> See, you were actually moved. That's the real meaning of moved. Yeah. 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 Well, and it was like, it wasn't like I was having tears, um, <laughs> but it was, it was that for, so on the, on the one hand, it was, it was an excuse to go back and read some of Joan Didion's old work. And she is so, such a weird mixture of kind of, blase boring cool as a cucumber and then like sudden incisive red meat digs and like they kind of weave together and then you, you're caught by surprise um so that in itself was like oh like that's great now i've got that kind of fresh in my head um but then just like hearing writers talk about their influences and what has inspired them to write and how they go back and try to like capture elements of their past but do it in a way that's entertaining that was just like oh cool i want to want to read that and i think like one of my favorite essays in that collection is the um the one about sort of finding the time when joan didion wasn't cool like the one time that she wasn't totally cool yes and um I, like, I think there's something about... She was wearing white tights? Yeah, she was wearing white tights, <laughs> which are decidedly not cool. <laughs> when I first moved to Los Angeles is, like, when I kind of got introduced to Joan Didion. And so I, I hadn't, even though I'm from California, I, I hadn't really, like, w- you know, read any of her work before I moved to L.A. 
And then I read like all of it um, when I was working at Book Soup. And what's I think really interesting is like she's such a specific part of Los Angeles. Like I think that Joan Didion really like, you know, East Los Angeles doesn't exist to Joan Didion. Right. Right. Like it's it's the West Side. It's upper crusty. It's like the shit that everyone thinks about when they think of, um, you know, the the sort of stereotype of L.A. Which is uh, still here. But it's so funny because I feel like the longer I live in L.A., the more I'm like, I, I ne- that is something I never experienced. It just means you're hanging out with cooler people. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the constant noise of downtown. That's all I'm surrounded by. The aroma of downtown. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In every sense of that word. (laughs) But I just think like it was interesting to sort of hear all these different women and a couple of men um, sort of talk about not just L.A. and how it influenced them, but also Joan Didion's like insight into Los Angeles and how they both it sort of was correct and then also incorrect. Mm. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And what was left out of it is also important. I mean, like, that's what I feel like a lot of the the work that we're doing is to, like, not do that kind of erasure and not, you know, let those voices go unheard. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about Dryland now, because that's kind of a great counterexample in terms of homegrown yeah. writers who are, you know, practicing their craft and not um, not in the mainstream like yeah. not establishment yeah we're basically um i've been doing it for five years now and it's been we're not tied to any institution there's no mfa program behind me um i basically sell ad space mm-hmm. to people and that's how it gets funded and i basically go around to different open mics and readings and spaces and try to find writers try to find poets and uh i used to run a a writer's workshop in South Central where I would also meet other people that could be published and I don't know I just uh, I have this idea that like um, you know like I want to I see the, the the journal as like a historical document mm-hmm. where I'm like you know cap- capturing this moment in time where like we're 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 kind of like making sense of who we are and and also trying to stay true to our roots and things like that. So I feel like Dryline is a place where the people can do that and not feel like they're catering to white people or catering to like the mainstream or something. Like they can do it and they can do it there, you know? I don't know. Under their own gaze or like under, like not under the white gaze. Has that, um, has it changed in terms of what kind of submissions you've been able or what kind of, you know, um, yes, stories and poems and nonfiction you've been able to get? It definitely has. In the beginning, we received, we would receive like 90%, 90% of our submissions would be from white people and it would be white men mainly. And there were a lot of things that were like, just, man, it was just like disturbing stories that would come in. Like a lot of things about like mass shootings or like serial killers and things like that. There was a lot of things that I would be exposed to that I like was not digging from from white people, and I kind of had to make it more. Um, I like change the the mission statement so that it could people could understand a little bit more about what I was doing because I think I was a little too soft before, so I kind of like made it a little bit more like. Um, up front i was just like you know if you are a cis hetero um white dude 
who's gonna talk about like their problems that we don't want we don't want your we don't want your stuff and um that has like cut that down significantly so we hardly ever receive anything like that anymore thank god um so yeah now like we get a lot of really good submissions like from white people and from poc uh black people and uh it's kind of been it's taken a while to get there but like it has happened and um over the years like i've received like hate mail also from like white dudes saying that i'm like running an exclusive club and all this stuff they'll say but that i'm just kind of like uh, thank you i'm gonna hang this up on my wall this is like my this is my certificate you know of, of yeah. me making it doing something right. yeah. yeah so things have been like really good i don't know it's just kind of been taken off um harry gamboa the famous chicano artist is like one of our main supporters he's he got published in the last issue and um we got featured in the la times and you know yeah. people have just been hearing about us and like this time around we got so many submissions we got about like a little bit over 300 damn yeah that's a lot and that's a record like the most i had ever gotten was maybe like 200 at like the peak of of submissions and and a lot and this time it's been like really good stuff from all over the country all over the world so it's been good i was reading volume nine um the most recent one and my first thought was like i want to see these poets perform all these poems there's some really powerful stuff i love the like um the mixture of english and spanish in some of them where it's just woven right through um i think i first heard about dryland from sakaya manning yeah, yeah. and she was talking it up i'm like okay okay like we'll we'll connect yeah, we're eventually here. <laughs> i'm hoping that like i mean it's just kind of been like i've been taking it one step at a time you know like when i started this this, this was the vision that i that i was that I had in mind i was like i wanted to get to the point where like i'm featuring poc and black poets and artists and i want to like have it just be about us and and also like we're getting the the kudos for it no one else like usc isn't backing me up so they're not getting the kudos you know no one it's us we're getting it and that feels so good because um you know like um like uh, i remember the first year or the first time i went into print i must have sold like 50 copies or something this time around i think we've reached almost 400 copies sold so to me it's just kind of like man people are actually reading these it's not that people are just collecting them or people are subscribed people are going out of their way to order it to go to to one of the locations to buy a copy to read it i mean at least i hope people are reading it but i mean i i just feel like the way that i've gone about it i make sure that they're at locations where people are going to read. So, like, let's say, like, I've I put them at record stores. I put them at um, caf- cafes, um, art stores. Not necessarily, like, there's a couple bookstores in there, but I've kind of been, like, more at the community, community spaces. Can I ask how you're talking a little bit about it already, but, like, the distribution, the model, like, how do you go about it? Is it you're knocking on doors, you're asking people? Is it through some listserv like how yeah. do you do the distribution <laughs> I basically have like met so many people over the course of like five years or more and I basically go to them like hey you want to buy it you want to sell it in your shop you want to I love your coffee shop can you sell it here and those are the main places that they've been selling so like um, in Huntington Park at Crucitas that's been my number one seller like they've sold at least 20 copies so far and then there's another spot in um, 
Boyle Heights called Capullo Cafe, and they've also sold about 20. So to me, that's like, whoa, like that's the community. That's not literati. That's not, these aren't bookworms. These aren't MFA types. These are people that are coming in, you know, buying a coffee, looking at the book, like, oh, what's this? And then they open it, and then they're like, inspired to buy it and read it so that to me has been so effective in like the way I've been doing it so there's no list I just kind of go around and like meet people and um it's been good so far everybody has been like really and these are POC spaces mainly so like they've been very supportive and um it's been great so far I mean I think like if you go stick to your community you can't lose well that's really interesting to me sort of in like the context of what we were talking about with um whether or not big publishing can change because i think i know like one of the things that they the, the like editors at those big houses will say is that like these people don't come across their desk and so i i always wonder like how we can get um if you know something like what you're doing the, the voices that you're featuring in there like how to get that into the hands not just of people in the community, but also of people who are making these decisions at big houses, you know, or at, mm. like, is that, I mean, I don't have any of the answers, but like, is that one of the ways that we could possibly move this? Well, I mean, I have a ways? theory. I definitely have a theory behind that because I, I kind of see it like an, like an urban planner does it. Like my homie is an urban planner and he does, he doesn't, he has this like uh, motto. It's like planner. You can't plan from your desk. I feel like that's the same thing with this. It's like when it comes to literature, it should be accessible to everyone. So you have to go meet everyone. So I feel like, yeah, like you can be at your desk at an, as an editor and wait for things to come to you. And then you read it and you're like, oh, that was my day. I read five manuscripts. <laughs> but, but you're not. She did a hair flip yeah. so for all our listeners. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you're not there. You're not meeting people and having them read you a poem for the first time in their lives and they're crying and you're like that's a poem and then they give it to you and you publish it that's like a whole other thing like you're actually there like in the the like supporting it, their community I don't know, right it's even beyond that it's like it's like you're in the energy of creation like you're in the creativity space i don't know how to explain it but like you're there where things are happening so i feel like as editors like we should be there where things are happening and we should be there to kind of like nurture the soil and like nurture these these voices that like need you to say like yeah that's i want to publish that like yes let's do this and a lot of the stuff that i've been doing over the years has just been that like just so i, I try to not just stay comfortable and just be at home and read read the submissions i try to like always stay active and like go to people's readings go to their uh book launches um you know go back to these coffee shops and continue supporting and you know get ideas from different artists like hey what should be on the next cover or what who do you think is cool and you know i'm always like kind of like keeping my eyes open and and you know these are things that i feel like one of these corporate editors can't do because they, they're used to things being handed to them the whole model is different with agenting and how acquisitions happen but that's i mean we we're talking about boring and like fun this the way that i do it is fun and i feel like that's the way you 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 find these stories that like you are not heard because people are like um 
Because when people think of like, oh, I got to get into one of these mainstream publishers, they're already writing a certain way. Like, oh, I'm going to write a way that caters to them. Um, and that's probably what Janine did. You know, like I'm going to write it in, in a way that caters to them. But I feel like if you if you change the model and make it more open, make it more like, um, I want to say like arm in arm kind of connections with, with, with writers as editors, then I feel like we can we can kind of like move things along where like we can shift the culture. I mean, I'm just saying that because like I went, I, I went to Cuba in, in October and I kind of saw a little bit of that. I kind of saw how like cheap books were and how accessible they were. And I was like, why can't it be like that over here? Why can't like we just, oh my God, why can't I buy like a book for 25 cents like in Cuba, you know? I feel like when I was in Cuba, everything was very much about like we're all on the, on the same boat, mm-hmm. you know? And I just feel like, why can't why can't things be like that here? You know, capitalism. Like, yeah, like, yes. where where's the money, right? Yes. The question, where is the money in publishing? Yeah. And it is so centralized in New York and in, you know. Well, it's going to be interesting. Simon and Schuster just got put up for sale because Viacom basically said like this is not something that we really care all that much about. And so it's going to be interesting to see where corporate publishing goes if that's going to be the new trend. Um, because it was about what consolidation and now maybe it's something in else in the 80s and 90s like a lot of those smaller imprints that started in the 1800s basically got bought up by these big publishing yeah. entities and then those entities got bought by big media companies so harper collins is owned by news corp aka fox um Simon Schuster is owned by Viacom, though it is up for sale now, right? So you, it was like corporate publishing is just another wing of like a a media conglomerate, right? And so I think that's where a lot of the problems stem from. Um, I mean, they stem from a lot of places, but one of the things is that like they probably have more money to throw around than they, than it. Um, I don't want to say they should have. But maybe that a book can sustain or that an author can Well, because it's like, I think about like in the last like five or six years, the 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 seven figure deals of fiction, of debut fiction. And uh, Jenny Cummings wasn't debut fiction. Was her no, name Cummings? But uh, wasn't debut fiction. But like there was a, that, I think maybe in 2016, there was like The Girls by Emma Klein and Yaa Giasi's Homegoing. And um, I have read both of those books. Yaa Giasi's Homegoing is my favorite book ever written. It is absolutely stunning. Um, I honestly cannot believe she wrote that book. I don't know how she did it. It's so good. It's like, I mean, I just like, I could say, I could say, I could talk about that book for a long time. But it's like, it doesn't seem like it should be humanly possible to write a book that good and powerful and that like shed so much light on something that America is still living through to this day, which is the effects of slavery, which is basically what that book is about. Um, And Emma Klein's book, I'm a big true crime person, I said earlier, um, and it's basically a very thinly veiled look at the Manson family. And I liked it. I didn't love it. Um, that's my personal opinion. It sold fine. It sold pretty well. I don't know that a million dollar advance is... That's a lot of money. million dollar advance is a lot of money. Um, my thing is like... 
why why are these advances given and to whom are they given and like i think there is that's where i see the the money that corporate publishing has and i say like like nobody knows what the fuck is going on or what they're doing sometimes i hear authors like advances and i'm like why does that person get like no money and then this book that like no one will ever hear about got a five hundred thousand dollar advance and like the fuck is that like there's no rhyme or reason to any of it and so that's where it's a little frustrating and yes the the people who are getting those big advances all almost entirely are white people um and that is a huge problem but also just like what even is that like most of those authors then don't earn out their advance and then they're fucked their career is fucked um when they don't earn out that advance and it doesn't sell all that well instead of building up to something so but yeah the model doesn't the model doesn't support that kind of build up like the corporate model right like it's all about you're it's better to be a debut author that no one's ever heard of than to be a mid-list author with like a solid sales record you know like i'm talking to get this like million dollar advance like if you you know consistently sell a decent number but you're not like a bestseller you're never going to get that million dollar advance even if your new book is like amazing you know but if you're someone who's you've never heard of before and they have this like hot new idea and there's one thing that the industry is clamoring over you're going to get in the bidding war and then you're going to get that seven million dollar or million dollar advance one person gets a jackpot and then everyone else gets shitty contract terms but i think like what's what's not talked about is like what happens after the jackpot with those authors Mm. because i actually think that they end up fucked too Mm. one one million not that like getting a million dollar advance isn't great it is I mean, when we, if you really want to like get into the nitty gritty, they don't get all that at once. That's broken down over a long time. Um, they get payments of it. Um, you know, at least four, probably more. And taxes That's over. Still pretty good. No, absolutely. But <laughs> it's if, real money. If then, yeah. if then Gosh. your career stalls out, and that's all the money you ever get, and you have to pay taxes on it, and that's and all you're known for, and it's all the money you get. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you then you have to go get another job because like you're you're not supporting yourself on that for a whole lifetime, you know. Right. So yeah. like I, not that I feel I don't feel bad for anyone who gets a million dollar advance, but like I but think there's more to that story. Yeah. And that's know? even like the best case scenario. If the best case scenario for a writer doesn't isn't sustainable and everyone else is like some other version of like misery and not making a living off of it, like then the whole thing is broken. And I think part of it is baked into it. Like, right. Like I remember I always think back to this like grade school English class where you're like, here are these famous authors that everyone reads at that time. Right. And then the teacher made a point of pointing out this person was like an accountant. This person was a scientist or whatever. And like the point, the whole point of that was this is not a career that you make your living at with very few exceptions. Right. Like, you're a writer because you want to write and you have a story to tell. And yes, we could all do things to make that a lot easier for people to be able to do that important work. Um, but it's never really been a thing that that's my job. I go to the office, I go to the writing factory and I write, you know, a novel a week and I make my living doing that, you know, like with very, very few exceptions. Obviously, there are people that do that. Um, but there's like less than 100 people in the whole world that do that. Right. So like that's what I'm saying, like as a general rule, 
it's like we look at the industry and we're like, oh, we can't make a living at doing this. And that's true. But also the industry has never been a place where you make a living doing it. Like you you find other ways to make a living. And I don't know, like I think some, some we need to talk about that larger conversation as well. We need to also acknowledge that writing is probably never going to be your day job, you know, and that that's kind of OK, because even the most famous writers that wasn't their day job. You I mean, know? that's true, but I still like have to go back to like our culture. Like, it's still pretty elitist to be like, oh, I'm a writer making a living off of it. You know, like, it, I feel like there should be space for more people yeah. to be able to do that because there's so many good, like, thinkers out there that are like struggling and they probably wouldn't be able to put out a book if they had to like work so much they weren't working so much so i just feel like there there, sh- there needs to be more space for more people because like right now it's just like i don't know i just i feel like <laughs> corporate publishing just doesn't believe in writers and like i don't feel like the the love is there for writing i just don't believe it oh i th- i think that that's I feel like they get lucky sometimes where there's like a dope editor who's pushing a book and like all these agents that are like pushing this book. And, and I think that happens, but I don't feel like yeah. it, it always That's happens. That's more hacking the system than yeah. the system running the way it we'd like it to. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think that the publish. I mean, I always talk to people who work in publishing and I'm like, you have to be passionate about books to work in publishing because it's not like. I mean, even at those big corporate houses, unless you're at a very high level, you're not making any money either, right? These people are living in New York City making like $30,000 a year, right? They're living in a closet, basically. Right, with four other people. Right, and so it's like, so there's this part of me that like, I, I think you're right. I think there's like a, I think there's like a way in which when you, when you work in publishing long enough, you do develop and have to in order to survive in it um a kind of skin about some of some of the stuff that used to like for me personally I'll just talk I'll talk about myself um that for me personally like I started working in publishing or in books 15 years ago because I fucking love books I love I'm sorry I didn't even ask if I could cuss on this we cuss all the time okay good um but like I fucking love books I love reading I love being transported I love I really love reading stories that are nothing about anyone like me. So like, you know, a story where I'm like, oh, this person led a life that I will never see or know. Like that's, I want to read that story always, always. But like, there are certain things about the reality of working with and publishing where sometimes even books that you care deeply about, like you have to have some distance from because like the market is so cruel in a lot of ways, right? So like we've had books that we published that I just like, I adore and I just like want to put in everyone's hand and they just like don't sell that well. And because of the realities of the fact that my company has to make money and in order to pay me and we have to keep afloat that like, I then don't get to spend a ton of time on that book that I am in love with and that like I want everyone to read. I have to spend time with the one that you know I'm like it's fine it's you know at least people are buying books you know all the things we tell ourselves and I think at corporate publishing like I work at an independent publisher and I have I have those feelings sometimes in corporate publishing I think it's even more so because like that bottom line is all that matters so I think you're right in certain ways but then I do think it's the publishing industry is staffed by people who like just fucking read Judy Bloom and and you know 
little women when they were kids because because the publishing industry is almost entirely white women and that's why i'm using those references but like and and just like wanted to bring joy to future generations with books so i mean i think that's both a highlight and maybe and a problem yeah no i mean i I think you're right i just feel like yeah at the very top the people that are like okay this is gonna go this is gonna be a bestseller those are the ones that are don't necessarily care about the writing. That's what I mean. So for, I don't think say, the small presses, say for the indie presses, you know, those of us who are, like, putting out books on a small scale because we do love this and we're putting in a lot of free, unpaid work, you know, what can change to, like, not to, like, sustain us financially, but to make this more, I don't know, viable, to keep going? Like, what keeps you going? Um, for me, like the excitement of finding really good work, like when I get something that is just like, oh my God, wow. I like, that's the most exciting part for me. Um, but also just knowing that none of us are getting rich off of this gets me going. I'm just like, okay, well, we're all, we're all in the same. Okay. We're all, you know, but I, I also feel like, um, we could become better at being organized and becoming like a collective because so many of us are doing the same work and it's like if we kind of came together in a certain way maybe we could become our own little conglomerate or whatever you know i don't know mm-hmm. i have no idea no i like that and i do i think i think we all kind of get so tunnel vision about like what we're doing in the moment that like sometimes it's you know you have to like poke your head up and look around and be like, okay, what's everyone else doing too? Like, I want to see this. That's that's going to be even more the case now for the next couple months as we're sort of living with Corona. We're all like in our little silos, just doing our work and not getting out much. It's like, I think that's a real risk is like, what if we all just like become these like cells that don't like communicate with each other? Maybe we'll read more. I think <laughs> I mean, really I think at the end of the day the thing that makes everything in publishing better is people buy books you know and for better or worse that just doesn't happen like I obviously publishing especially corporate publishing is a billion dollar industry so they are selling some books um, but it's not movies it's not whatever's causing this fire truck to go by outside you know like um, it's just people just aren't buying books to the numbers that sustain an industry the way we would want it to you know like and that's the sad part we all need to read more we all need to spend more money to read that sounds awful but like buy a book today (laughs) well and not just buy a book but go to a library and check out a book or you know be involved with like something that's going on in your community i mean so many of these readings are free you know did you okay? Silver lining though. Did you see um, earlier this year? Like they did a tally of all of the library visits oh, by yeah, Americans. Oh yeah, more than the movies or something yeah, like that. Yeah, more than the movies yeah. and sporting events. People went to libraries. Wow. Also, That's really like, cool. Like two years ago, there was a. They did another thing where it was like poetry sales were up. Like, I don't know. Poetry what, sales. What was it like? I don't know. Years. I don't want to say the percentage, but yeah, because I feel like people are looking for more. You know, I feel like you you have instant gratification with Netflix and Hulu and all this other stuff. But honestly, like most of that stuff kind of sucks so like you know people want to know what's going on people want to feel like they're a part of something and i feel like poetry really brings that and like books really do that well and i also think when you start that that like one of the things that publishing has gotten right with poetry and perhaps they've gotten it right because 
poetry is never expected to sell. So they're always like pleasantly surprised when it does is like you get these. I actually think, and I have zero evidence to back this up, but just from my own, like, um, anecdotal evidence. You have a lot of that. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But like, I think that where, what I look at poets that are putting out work that is getting recognized on a huge scale I see that as actually mostly poets of color. Yes. Um, you know, yeah, just leading like the way. off yeah, that's the top changed, of my head, sure. Homie by Dina Smith. Um, yeah, yeah, Magical Negro by yeah. Um, yeah. Morgan, Morgan Parker. Parker. Sorry, yeah, you just said that. And um, you know, like, so, so you have these great works of poetry that are coming out, and that are like really tackling issues. And there's a way, of course, that poetry hits you in the heart in a way that, like other things maybe don't Mm -hmm. um and like that possibly is a a, a area of publishing that's like actually doing right and doing well and i i'm not i don't think any of those people are being made rich off of the poetry that they've put out but the fact that like we get to you know like saeed jones puts out a new poetry collection and we all like it comes to all the local bookstores and he maybe gets to go on a tour and we get to like hear him speak and then hopefully go look for poets, you know, at world stage press or other places in Los Angeles where, you know, there's poetry almost every night going on. And like, it's not Westwood. It's not happening in Westwood. I'll just say that. I wonder if it's that, you know, that the, the acquiring decision, if you're going to publish a book of poetry is like this poet's been doing some work and they are kick-ass. And now we're going to make sure that it's like in physical form that people can get. And that's what drives that book. And it's not like, how do we sell this product to these people? You know, it's kind of a different kind of frame for the decision. I think the model is different for poetry and I'm also only have anecdotal evidence for this, but, but I think a lot of poetry is underwritten by grants or nonprofits or publishing like, like, you know, big places also like FSG does a lot of poetry, um, but they're under the auspices of a big corporation, right? So maybe they can afford to take a loss on it. Actually, um, it's written into their contract. When for, uh, when FSG was sold to Macmillan, um, whoever, Ferrar, Strauss or Giroux, I forget which one it was. Um, said we will sell it, but you have to publish X amount of poetry okay. every year. So there you go. So like that's, Damn. yeah, like that that is not as much influenced by like we have to make sure we're making money off of this book. It's like it's a contractual obligation. Yeah. My I, to to kind of jump off of that for a second, like my husband has a very interesting philosophy about poetry. He's like you can track it historically, at least in like the last couple of centuries, that whenever there's like social strife, poetry has a spike. And like you saw it through the Harlem Renaissance, you're seeing it now. Like you're seeing it a bunch of other times. Yeah, yeah. So like you kind of see that that is a genre that I think we're all kind of saying the same thing on this that people turn to when they're uncomfortable or when they're looking for new ways of being or new ways of understanding their fellow man. Um, and that always has kind of a bump at that time. So it is, yeah, poets are leading the way. I also think poets are all about community. Like, yes. because they're so often in front of groups of people reading their work, they have communities, they have community support, they have communities around them. Whereas like if you're writing a work of nonfiction, you know, and you're like in the research stacks and like you're, you know, you're alone kind of in that you might interview people, but you're, there's not like a community that you're building up around you yourself. And so I think, I think poetry lends itself to community in a way that other books don't always that we, you know, Dan and I both run book clubs at the last bookstore, you know, 
you have to build those communities and like mm-hmm. you know get people to come out and come talk about these books whereas poetry it's like people want to sit and be and, and poets are entertaining and like yeah. you know you you sit down and you're like you're in for a night of you know who okay. knows what but like it's it's there's gonna be you know shit coming at you all the feels <laughs> I know I'm just like I wish we had like a centralized you know like like in downtown like a spot just for poetry you know just like where we can all be and perform and like read. a cat cafe slash poetry yeah, corner like we still need something <laughs> or an like owl that. cafe yeah. I mean an owl cafe I feel like sure. we still need something like that so if people want to read the amazing poets um, and poems in Dryland where can they find it Say on like uh, maybe the locations, on, like um, maybe online would yeah, be like the first step. Yeah, you can go online step. to check out all the different locations around LA and uh, San Francisco. Yeah, on the website uh, and the Bay, uh, and um, there's some copies in Cuba too. You can go to drylandla.org and just like pre-order the next issue, which is coming out in the summer, or um, order the last issue. You can also get the PDF version if you want, and yeah, just go online. Drylandla.org. Dot org. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Viva, thank you so much for being here. Thank you here. so much. For Julia, me. thanks for being here. And Dan, we're going to do this again. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll all be alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm here with Sochi Julissa Bermejo. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you. We uh, last spoke, well, no, we've run into each other a bunch, but the last kind of like big event we did together was at the Armory for Lambda Lit Fest. I guess we should start with where we are. What, what can you see? Uh, we're along the riverfront and there are these like uh, Disneyland type boats, very colorful pink and orange and green that they float by and it's really lovely out here. Sunny day. It's really lovely. And we arrived here at the AWP conference earlier in the week amid a lot of controversy. Yes. Uh, Monday morning was really when all the, can I say shit, hit the fan? It's fair to say that Twitter freaked out. Yes. And I mean, I was freaked out. The mayor did announce a state of emergency. And I, my friends and I, behind the scenes, not on Twitter, we're just texting and calling. And there were conference calls happening and, you know, as women who submit, we have, we had a, um, we had a book event, we had a book release uh, scheduled. We also had a book signing schedule. I myself had a panel that I created and, facil- and facilitating. So there was a lot of thoughts about, you know, well, what can we do? And who, if you don't have to go, don't feel pressure to go. But there's some of us who maybe feel a little bit pressure to go because of all the things that we were heading. So there was a lot of talk about that. Yeah, and a lot of tough choices. And it turns out that attendance is down quite a bit because a lot of people didn't show up. A lot of panels were canceled and um, a lot of small presses and others who had places at the book fair um, weren't there. So it's a smaller event than is typical, but there still are a lot of people here. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like that the book fair is half empty and that there's not so many people. It's kind of nice. It feels more intimate. I don't feel... I don't feel as anxious being in that space as I usually am. Um, the I heard something so cool today, though, that there have been panels where people walk in and there's an audience, but there are no panelists. And so they're like, OK, what do we do? And uh, somebody from Exposition Review, I wish I could remember her name. She told me that they were at this panel, no panelists, 
full audience and that someone in the this woman in the audience just said okay well who wants to talk about this we're supposed to be talking to women editors about editing who's in here who in here is a woman editor who wants to start a panel and they just made their own panel and I think that's really cool and hopefully she I asked her to write something for women who submit about it and like what she learned from that experience so I'm excited to read that that's fantastic, and it's it's a departure for AWP where everything has to be planned about a year in advance. Like they're going to start looking at proposals for next year uh, soon, so it's it's almost like a, a radically open model. Yeah, I mean, people were carrying. I've heard of people carrying tables down the lanes. You know, they already set them everything up and decorate everything, but they're in a lane that has like very little traffic, and people are just picking up their whole table and moving into a new section that's not being used. And like I'm like, maybe tomorrow, I'll just take my Women Who Submit banner and our anthologies and just sit at an empty table and try to sell some copies. Yeah. So let's talk about Women Who Submit and the work that you do to open up publishing for women and non-binary writers. Mm -hmm. uh, so Women Who Submit, for those of you out there who don't know, is a literary organization that began in 2011 with Ashaki Jackson and Alice Dixon and myself. And Alice Dixon, was part of Vita um, Women in Literary Arts. They had a different name at the time, but I can't remember what it was. Um, and they started counting the names in the tier one journals. We're talking like the New Yorker, the Paris Review. They were counting how many women were being published opposed to how many men, and also book reviews of books by women. And they found that there was a huge disparity. And of course, that's not that surprising. But then there was this like actual quantitative evidence out yeah. there that they were that they published and put out into the world. I feel like when when we look at those trends, it's not that it's surprising, but the degree that it's a problem, you know, like the, the extent of the problem is what's really kind of horrifying. I mean, uh, the Lee and Lowe figures came out, I think, towards the end of last year, which look at diversity in publishing. And it turns out that like 90 percent of the employees are white. And that is a problem for trying to create literature and books that serve a diverse audience. Um, and I also think for a long time, we all just kind of accepted the shit that we were handed. And we said, well, that's how it is. And I think in the last, you know, in the last decade and in the, definitely in the last four or five years, there's just definitely been a, a shift of like, we're not going to take it anymore. This is crazy. Like, we're, we're going to start talking about this. We're going to start acting out differently and expecting others to act differently. So what does Women Who Submit do? Uh, we do meetups. Um, what happened was with those numbers that <laughs> there's one of those boats are just going by right now. Um, with those numbers, Vita started asking editors, okay, well, why is the why are the numbers like this? And the editors main answers were, well, women don't submit as often. So Alice had the idea as one of the organizers in that group originally. She said, well, what if we do meetups and what if we make it fun? And I always think of it as like a Tupperware party, right? It's like, well, let's hang out. And, you know, and so we always bring food. We, we, everything's shared. We share, we have a potluck. We ask people to bring journals, old journals that they have because journals are expensive, but editors expect you to read them and we honor that. Um, and we believe we should be. So we have a lending library. We're sharing resources. We're sharing um, calls, open calls, contests. We, we share all that information and we encourage people to submit and it's just a meetup. So we have all that stuff and then we hang out with our computers, our laptops, they're open. We have our snacks with us. We have our drinks with us and then we just start submitting. And then when you submit, you get to say, I submitted and everyone claps for you. And then that might be the point where you're like, okay, now I can have the donut because I did my job. So it's a nice incentive. 
uh, yeah, and that's what that's how it works. <laughs> we like sweet rewards because so often in this career, it's uh, there's a lot of rejection, and that can be tough. Yeah, and, um, rejection is also a thing that we celebrate. We're just we're basically we just everything that we're told not to do, everything we're told is bad. We're just turning it around and saying. So we have a rejection brag for our members. If you get rejected from a journal, there's a space for them to share that and we clap for you and we cheer you on. And we're like, you know what? You put that piece out in the world and somebody read it and somebody thought about it and you're doing your job. So. And now we have a big new development for Women Who Submit. There is a new anthology. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, so our anthology is called Accolades. And it is collecting, it is a collection of work that our members have had published. So it's kind of like the proof, right? We're always encouraging people to submit. Doesn't mean we're getting submitted. Like the idea is we're raising the numbers of submissions. So hopefully we're raising the numbers of publications, but it's kind of hard to know really. And this is kind of one of those proof. It's like, oh, women don't submit. Oh, we're not getting published. Well, here's an anthology of all our work. And here's all the places we're getting published. And here are all the people that are reading us and are open to our work. And so we're kind of also, that's also its own resource, right? It's like, these journals like us also submit to these journals. Like maybe if you like my story and it's in this journal and you feel your story is similar, hey, what? Also send to that journal, you know? I love the idea of building the audience for journals that are explicitly open in that way and sort of by default ignoring the journals that seem to be closed in that way. Um, we have, a, like, when new members come in, we actually share a list of journals that are, like, we call them, like, our friendly journals. Like, they've published us. We've been in communication with them. We know that they are looking for women writers and non-binary writers. Um, and we share that list as, like, our, what is one of the things in our, like, starter pack. Um, but once a year, we do still encourage people to submit to Tier 1s. We call it a submission blitz. And that's kind of back to the Vita count because that's what got us all started. So it's, like, once a year, we're asking people, like, okay, Maybe tier ones, you don't want it. Maybe they kind of suck. Yes, it hurts when they send you a totally anonymous, we don't want you. Um, but once a year, can we just all just make it a practice and like send it out and just say, yep, okay, I did that. And um, yeah, so it's like we're doing both. Have there, have you ever spoken with any of the editors of those publications and sort of confronted them and said, so we are, we know that people are submitting. Yeah. Um, that, so that was one of the things in our AWP plan. Noriko Nakata is one of our um, organizers and she had created this plan of advocacy for the book fair and she had posted it on our um, website and you can see, you can still read it there. And so she had this whole plan of like, oh, here are the journals that like us, here are the journals that are doing well by you know gender parity, here are the journals that need help, like here's what you can do. And so we had this whole advocacy plan. We were gonna go around into the into the book fair, but Noriko couldn't come after all. I tried today. I like went around with my uh, postcards and I went to as many journals as I could find. Just to, basically at this point, I was just like, hey, we're women who submit. You ever heard of us? We're doing this thing. We just want you to know we're doing a thing, you know? And like, well, But that's a heavy lift to do, you know, you're working for change at each of those places. That's a, that's a lot. Yeah, it wasn't like I could have like a deep conversation with any editors and I don't think I had the capacity to anyway. Um, but I felt like at least, at least if anything, these editors, all I care is like, okay, so if somebody puts women who submit in their cover letter, at least now you know what that means. And then also, hey, in August, you might get an influx of, of submissions, and now you know why. <laughs> There's so much of the industry seems to be like, 
that knocking on the door to be like, hey, I'm here, I'm inevitable, are you ready? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think um, it's kind of like our next step. It's like we don't have to fight the editors, right? It's not like we have to like ambush them. It's more like we could probably start building relationships. We've been doing this for almost 10 years. So it's like, you know, at this point, we're a big organization and we can, we can start doing that. So we're kind of, that's where we're, I think we're going towards. So the anthology is now available. Where can people get it? Okay, so you can go onto the website um, and you can find out there. You can order it from our website, womenwhosubmitlit.org and they're $15 and there's just really beautiful work. Here at AWP, we had our release yesterday and we got to hear seven of the readers and it's just like, because we're always focused on submitting, we don't do a lot of readings. Like we do a lot of um, workshops, we do a lot of panels, we do a lot of like that kind of stuff, like career development stuff. And so when we do have readings, I'm like, damn, this is why we do this. Like these voices need to be heard. These voices need to be celebrated. We're, we're helping that happen. And that's, that was really powerful for me, really inspiring for me. Yeah, those stories were strong. I enjoyed listening and I hope to see some more readings at some point in the future. Yes. Um, yeah, there's, there's been interest from the members. And so it's kind of like, at this point, we have eight people on our leadership team and there's like committees for everything. So it's just a matter of like finding someone who's just, who would want to work on like doing readings for us. But we did something at Rorschach in LA. If folks know uh, David Rockland at Rorschach. He invited us to partner with him and he actually has said like, let's do this annually. And that was a really great reading. Um, so we're like, I love, that's one of the things I love is like doing all these partnerships and like talking to different organizations and making these avenues for people is really exciting. I'm sure Bookswell would love to do something with <laughs> Women in Submit. Oh, can you tell me about some of the, the authors and stories that are in the anthology? I help select the poetry. I mean, what you're going to find in here is these, a lot of beautiful work about identity. There's these really, a couple of great pieces about hair, which is like, a really emotional thing for a lot of us. I know every time I cut my hair, I cry. I know, I, maybe, maybe someone's going, she weird, um, but it's true. And so there's, um, and they think hair is just a really great metaphor for identity and like your family and your family politics and your family, what, you know, all that stuff is tied into that. Uh, your roots, huh? Um, um, so there's those kind of pieces, really beautiful pieces, like feminist pieces, pieces of, relationships, pieces about motherhood. Those are the kinds of the things I think about that stand out. I just love that that's like, these are the stories that we're champion. What's your website? Womenwhosubmitlit.org. When we made the name, I was more thinking of like women who lunch. That's where my mind was, or ladies who lunch. Um, because it was, in my mind, it was a kind of like a Tupperware party. We, so I don't think there was a lot of thought behind those words, but then <laughs> feedback quickly was like, you know that's dirty, or you know that's like biblical, and what are you saying? I'm not, I submit to no one. And so there's, there's either men with raised eyebrows or women like, how dare you? And I'm like, it's just so, it's kind of funny that way. But it gets a reaction and it's memorable and you know, people adapt. And it's also, you know, we're reclaiming a word, you know, and submission in one way is passive and women are have for a long time been expected to be passive, but in ours, it's an action. And that's one of the, something I was telling somebody earlier today is that what I love about our organization is that everyone in the organization, every member to every organizer leader is expected to be active. 
and like we don't do it alone it's very much a community the organizers are creating the spaces but we're asking people to bring stuff we're asking people to share their journals share their knowledge share their open calls all of that so it's like it's never a passive thing like if you're in you are bringing something do you ever see work or does it get discussed like pre-submission like you know is it does it ever serve as like a critique group or as a you know mentorship um we definitely talk about resubmitting we are always encouraging people to resubmit and also like honoring rejections and also honoring people's time to like feel that rejection however they need and then also coming back and like going back to the work um people have been asking us for workshops and we, i just um i'm in the middle of submitting a grant right now it's already actually in the second round through the east side initiative for a summer a women who submit first ever summer workshop in the three genres and that will help us lead up to what our what is our annual august event the submission blitz so the idea is we workshop together we'll have some then we'll also have some panels from editors to help people think about how they put stuff together and then we're going to all push our stuff at to tier 1 journals so much of the writer's life can be solitary and you found a way to break through that and create a community movement around it i think that's fabulous thank you i mean i love being in community with all these people and hearing their work last night was just so inspiring because it's like okay yeah we're we're doing this for a real reason like these voices need to be heard these stories need to be heard and it's just really exciting and i love i love how we're building it i noticed you are videotaping it Oh yes, we live stream. <laughs> Thank you. Uh yeah, we live stream from our Facebook group. Um all of our panels and all of our um workshops are all live streamed because we're just we give everything up for free. There's no we're really about knocking down any barriers, financial barriers, health barriers. Ch- like people with children can't come to a space. Well, you can go to Facebook and you can find that talk for free on Facebook. So it's archived. Yes. That's fantastic. We keep meaning to make a YouTube channel and we haven't gone there. But yes. <laughs> Sochi, thanks so much for being with me. I loved hearing about women who submit and I hope we get to work again in the future. Yes, thank you for inviting me. I think you're awesome in what you do. I love that we're like finding ways to partner. <laughs> Hello Bookswell Intersections listeners. This is Cody again. Things have changed quite a bit in the last week since I recorded the first segment of this podcast with some of my co-hosts. Most bookstores have canceled all of their events going forward and have closed their doors to walk-in customers. The good news is that most of them are still taking orders online and via the phone, and they have discounts on delivery and curbside pickup options. We have a list of their websites on the Bookswell website where you can click through and check out what their current policies are and how you can get books in your hands to read during these troubled times. You may have seen the Bookswell statement on COVID-19 and how we're responding. In essence, what we're trying to do is organize more literary events online and keep you informed as things change with the literary scene in LA. If you have suggestions for how we can continue to connect to readers and writers, we'd love to hear them. You can find our email on our website or just contact me directly at cody at bookswell.club or you can find us online on most major social media channels including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Look for us at Bookswell Club.
Stay safe out there, and until next time, keep reading. <laughs>